0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Henna Shah, and I'm here with the first in a series of exciting summer interviews with some of the most effective campaigners and activists in our movement. This week, Stefan and I had the pleasure of interviewing Lord Alf Dobbs and Councillor Stephen Cowan, leader of the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham, about their campaign to give safe passage to refugees. We were both really inspired by speaking to them, and I hope you will be too. As always... Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast, or just send it to a friend who you think will enjoy it. The more people we can reach, the more progressive campaigners we can inspire to make change. Finally, our extra show is taking a summer holiday, so we'll be back on Tuesday. In the meantime, enjoy.
2: By every measure, the United Nations data has shown that the number of globally displaced people is on the rise. At the same time, many governments across the world that could once be relied upon to play their part have turned their backs on these refugees who need help. Today, myself and Henna are joined by Lord Alf Dubbs, long-time campaigner for refugee rights and once a child refugee himself, and leader of Hammersmith and Fulham Borough, Stephen Cowan, to hear about the work they've been doing to tackle this issue from the bottom up. Both of you, thank you very much for joining us. It's good to see you. Hannah. do you want to kick us off?
1: Yes, I will. So I just want to start by picking apart why this issue is so important for you both. Stephen, you mentioned that you've both been to visit the Calais jungle and you've also both been to Greece as a pair. What was that like?
0: I think the shock, as you, the first time I went to Calais, as you crunch along the white gravel, um, is, is, is the people just coming out and watching you and wondering what's going on. As we got led into a darkened, what looked like extended shed, uh, I could just make out maybe 20 or 30 very young boys sitting around, quite a lot of expectation on their face. And I came across one child who sat next to me who was shivering. um, And it was um, the 18th of August, 2016, so it was a very hot day. So when I said to the interpreter, why is this child shivering? He said, because the child's been driven mad with fear. Now that was an eight-year-old, in fact his 10-year-old brother who was also there told me he was acting as his dad. But to think about what that young person had been through and to think about what he had right to Expect in this life, then there's a huge dichotomy. And I think it's for politicians like Lord Dubs to step in uh, and who are stepping in and are trying
3: to fix that with a sort of compassionate type of leadership that we so need.
1: Alf, does that mirror your experience?
3: Well, I certainly share share Steve's experience of, of visiting the. The jungle, all was left of it in Calais, and indeed the terrible conditions on the Greek islands and in the camps there, A t- desperate situation for these, particularly the young people. They've got no hope. Uh, they've, they've got no sense of a future unless some country like Britain gives them a chance to safety. And it, it's it's that awful feeling of their lives have uh, have been spent in these terribly dangerous conditions. And I get the feeling we've got to do something to help them. You know, we can't just walk away from it.
2: And I for one touch on your experience here, because many of our listeners will already know that you arrived in Britain on a train from Prague in 1938, at just the age of six. And you were one of 10,000 Jewish and other children rescued by the Kindertransport. And I think already, even though not that much time has passed, it's really hard for later generations to really understand what it was like at that time. How has your experience impacted the way you see the current political moment that we sit in now?
3: Well, obviously, I'm more emotionally involved with the cause of refugees than if I hadn't gone through that sort of experience myself. On the other hand, the argument on behalf of refugees should not depend upon the personal experiences of the uh, uh, of the person putting them forward. Uh, the argument on behalf of refugees is is independent of that. However, I would add this: that it's been very helpful uh, as regards the government for me to be in to have been an unaccompanied child refugee because they find it harder to criticize the idea of unaccompanied child refugees. Otherwise, it looks like a personal attack on me. So, <laughs> so, so I've made I've sort of, used to that. Uh, actually, I never talked about my background. It was the media that did it. But but I, I do think I have this emotional involvement because in some of these young people, I see a picture of myself accepted because my journey was easy, but I fled the Holocaust. Um, some of them have been through terrible journeys, six months or a year, travelling across Europe, across the seas, in very dangerous circumstances. So their their background has been more traumatic in terms of the journey they've, they've had.
1: And many of our listeners will have heard Beth Gardner-Smith. Um, we did a podcast with her a few months ago talking about the Safe Passage, Our Turn campaign. And if you're a keen progress activist, you will have seen Eleanor Harrison, who gave a session at Progress Conference, which was excellent. But for those who haven't uh, attended the event or heard the podcast... Alf, could you maybe provide us with a quick recap on what Safe Passage is trying to achieve with this campaign?
3: Yes, it's very straightforward. Britain took ten thousand unaccompanied child refugees in under a year in 1938-39, and the campaign we're putting forward, the the campaign, the ask of of, of the government and of the politicians, is that Britain should commit to taking ten thousand unaccompanied child refugees over the next ten years, both from Europe and also from, from the region, that's to say from Jordan, uh, Lebanon, and Turkey. It's a thousand a year. It's such a small ask. It's about five per local authority. But we want to enter into that commitment because by doing that, we give young people stuck in these terrible conditions hope for a future.
2: Stephen Hammersmith and Fulham has also been very active on this front. I want to hear about this storytelling event called You, Me, and Those Who Came Before. And I also want to hear about where that fits into your broader strategy as a borough to get involved with this issue.
0: Actually, well, one of our values that we're, uh, we stand for as a borough is to be a compassionate council, which is something we tell the staff and our residents and to give an understanding of what we're here for. And it's very easy to bandy words around like compassion, but the actions that should follow on from it need to be bold. And they need to, I think, in many ways, define who we are as a society. What makes me proudest of my country is where we've been our, our most compassionate and where we've done the, 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 the type of things that have shaped the world and shaped our country to be the, everything that we love about it today. So we've never been a country that's turned our back on refugees or and certainly we've never been a country that's been uh, comfortable with seeing bad things happen to children. So someone needs to step up in this society. And there are people like Alf Dubbs and Vanessa Redgrave and Juliet Stevenson and Safe Passage and many people who are doing that. But I think it's a responsibility of anyone in the elected office to be as big and bold as possible in fighting on this cause because we cannot allow these horrors to continue.
2: And in terms of engaging people in that fight, storytelling is a massive part of that. Are there any stories that have stuck out for you that have really kind of hammered that home? Um, I think,
0: um, there's too many stories to hear uh, when Alf and I were in, um, I recited the story of when Alf and I were in Lesbos and again, it was a ammonia smelling, uh, refugee camp. And there was a bit where, um, I was standing next to a tent and a lady came out and she saw me, um, and asked who I was. And she said, well, let me introduce you to my friend. And her friend came out who'd given birth earlier that week. And they placed this small baby in my arms who was a week old. And if you look into the eyes of a small baby, especially if you had one yourself, there's a moment where you connect. And I looked into this beautiful child's face and then looked at the mother and the anguish on that face. And she's just like, I don't know what's going to happen to us. So I, I honestly do not think that it is in any way British, not to try and answer that question. And I know that our society is an amazing country and we need to have a government that listens to its better angels. And it's people like Alf and others who are campaigning that are hopefully making it do that.
2: Well, and Alf, you're a long time campaigner on this. And I'm interested to hear how big a part does storytelling have to play on campaigning on this issue? Because it's so engaging. And so harrowing at the same time.
3: Let me first pay a tribute to Hammersmith Council. Uh, Steve, I think they're doing a great job. I've talked to lots of local authorities, and Hammersmith are doing it, and it makes it much easier for me to say to government it can be done. Here's a council that's doing it. Uh, I think that I think that I think that's important. Well, I think storytelling storytelling is important, and of course, uh, everyone has their stories and their experiences, and they put them over in terms of what happens so that people understand. You know, I, uh, there quite a few here. Uh, there, there was one young um, um, Syrian boy, I think, who told me about the journey and how he travelled, and he'd seen his father killed in front of him by a bomb in Aleppo or Damascus. Shocking, shocking for somebody to go through that, uh, uh, and yet he'd moved, and, he, and he'd, come, he, he'd, he'd come. He'd come. He got to Calais, and, and, and there, then he was anxious to get to get, get to Britain. And I think the story of what people have been through and their lives is so moving and it's so important. And I think we have to tell it. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave made a film about, about refugees called um, uh, Sea Sorrow. And again, that tells several stories in one about refugees, the journeys uh, and the challenges and the difficulties and, uh, and the responsibilities. So we all have to tell it. And I think the key thing is to get public opinion on side. <laughs> And I think Steve and Hammersmith Council have done that in Hammersmith, and it's very important if we don't have public opinion supporting us, then then we can be shot down and So the important thing is get the public on the side, get the public to understand, especially about child refugees, put the argument, put the case, and people say, "Yes, we can do more
1: and um, that leads me on very well to my next question actually Alf, um, because Stephen Hammersmith in Fulham has taken in many more refugee children in comparison to other councils in the UK. Um, Obviously an argument that's made a lot on the right, but also unfortunately on the left as well, is a question of integration and how young people from different cultures might integrate into our society. It'd be interesting to hear from both of you what your response would be or about how you can win over public opinion on that front.
0: Firstly, there's a lot of other councils taking refugees. There's two ways refugees get here. They They either arrive in UK where they automatically have rights And then there is a voluntary government scheme that looks to share out, once they arrive, where those children go to make sure that one or two or three particular councils don't have too much of that financial burden. And Croydon Council, for example, is taking hundreds and hundreds of children that way. What we've done in Hammersmith and Fulham is to take more dubs children than anybody else taken 25 so far. And we've said we will take 200 if the government gives us full cost recovery. And that means taking children directly from the refugee camps and cutting out the middle guy, which in this case are some very unsavory people traffickers and people smugglers. So we think that's the right thing to do. In terms of for public coming with us, I think in government, you always have a duty to try and govern for everybody. So in Hammersmith and Fulham, we have over the last five years, the best record of cutting tax in London, the only council in Britain, the only, only council in England to count, to abolish charges for adult social care. The first council in the country to give free breakfast to all children. And we have an industrial strategy that's trying to bring about the best business startup opportunities and jobs and careers for our residents. And we think it's the first of its kind in the country, and so we're intent on delivering. So within that context, where we're dealing with the basics that the, that the public wants us to do, we did say we would spend some of that political capital on taking refugees, not knowing what the reaction would be. And I was—I don't think I've ever been so happily surprised in my life by the number of people who then stopped me in the street to shake my hands and said, thank God, you're taking some refugees and you're speaking up for those children. So we should never underestimate the generosity of people and the kindness and decency of people. And that's been, for me, one of the best bits about this is to see that what I, what I feared might be a negative for us politically turned out to be people hugely positive. And I think they do want hope. And actually showing compassion is an optimistic, hopeful thing to do. And it's something that's in all of us. So I think politicians need to be bold knowing
3: that the public out there are fundamentally decent.
1: Um, Alf, do you have any thoughts on this?
3: Well, uh, I, I think Steve, Steve has in fact said that. I think it was a brave step by the council to do it because they did it. There, 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 could, have, there could have been a, a resistance to it, but I, I think he's done it. And he's, he's taken, council have taken some really quite children with disabilities as one boy with serious mental health difficulties and the council have taken him. And if the council hadn't taken him, he would still be left in a, a, probably in a police cell, <coughs> locked up in a police cell in Greece. So I think it's very important we understand what they've done and why it is brave them to do it. But other councils have done it as well. We, we do try and use Hammersmith as an example to other councils and say to them, look, Hammersmith have done it, you can do it, you can do a bit more as well. So I, I repeat, I go around the country and I ask people to approach their local councils and ask them what they're doing because we want. We don't want all the pressure to be just on uh, <coughs> just on one council in London or even a handful of councils in London. I, th- I think we have to make it a, a much wider thing than that. And, and in our campaigning, we, we try and do that.
1: Great, thank you. Um, we're now going to take a short break. Um, in the meantime, please subscribe, rate and review. It helps us get our message out to progressives around the country and in the Labour Party. And when we're back, we're going to talk a little bit more about refugees and safe passage. We've heard all kinds of promises from the Conservatives about their commitment on taking in refugees. Have you thought that their words have lived up to their actions?
3: They haven't. When my amendment went through, I was assured by the then immigration minister (coughs) that that they would live up to the letter and spirit of the amendment. And it's my contention they've done no such thing. As the amendment went through, there was no actual figure uh, for the numbers. But the government arbitrarily said we're limited to 480, and of those, they've only taken 220. You know, they're nowhere near even their own limit. And we know there are children in uh, sleeping rough in northern France near Calais, or children sleeping sleeping um, uh, in terrible conditions. The camps that Steve and I visited in on, on Lesbos, uh, and there's a desperate need, uh, and, and so. You know we can do we can do better and and I think for some reason the, the government are dragging their their heels. I know the individual government ministers have actually said to me privately, keep on, keep on with it. but uh, but the government policy as a whole has not, has not been not, not been helpful. and we've tried to make sure we get support from politicians in all parties, but of course we've had more support from from opposition policies and politicians and from government supporters. We've tried to make it that because we want public opinion not to see it as a, as, as a totally one-party issue.
2: And Stephen, in a speech you gave um, at the storytelling event, you said that Europe is experiencing its worst refugee crisis since the Second World War. But given the climate crisis, which is only getting worse, and that's probably going to make the number of refugees and displaced people around the world go up as we get more famine. Do we need something almost more comprehensive and more long term than the current goals we're pushing the government for? Does there have to be a kind of a cross-party consensus built here that this is not a political problem, this is a practical problem for the 21st century.
0: Yeah, I think it is a problem that um, it's hard to develop consensus on long-term issues like climate change and then to relate them to every other factor, which is what does that mean for migration and indeed for the refugees will be affected by it. I think the broader problem that we face at the moment and in the short term is the failure of governments across the Western world to really see that long, those long-term challenges. Uh, Alf and I were in Athens last year where we met the um, Greek justice minister who was responsible for refugees. And for me, it was a salutary moment because the coin dropped when she said, when we were asking about what can Europe do and how can we influence things in the UK? And she pointed out that in Hungary, there was an extremist far-right um, government, same in the Czech Republic, same in Poland, same in um um, Italy, that the far right had come second in the elections in Germany. Same in Holland, where they'd come they second. Same in France, where the national front was just narrowly stopped. And that here we've got Brexit and Farage and Boris Johnson and all the other dangers. And then you look across at Brazil or the United States. So the question is, I think for us, is the worldwide political climate is more populist and extremist than we faced in any of our lifetimes or indeed um, since my parents were children. And how are we going to rise to that? And what's the challenges we're going to meet to protect this democracy and pluralistic society? I think the way we do that is to make sure that we tackle austerity and we tackle the other issues that are driving those changes. But at the heart of that, we have to be very proud and bold in arguing for our values. And at the heart of that is a compassion and a belief in our fellow human beings and that i think at the end of the day is the type of uplifting thing that can break through the fear and hate coming from the populist
2: yeah and exactly and Alpha, i want to bring you in here as well because if this refugee crisis is set to only get worse for the time being and we're already seeing such high levels of xenophobia in countries turning their backs on this crisis is is this problem set to get worse is it going to get harder and harder to make this case or like Stephen said, is this is this an economic problem fundamentally? We've got to solve to bring people on board.
3: Well, it's pretty, it's it's pretty complicated, but I think we have to we have to be on our guard, as as Steve, Steve Stephen just pointed out, <sighs> that, that there are political parties of the extreme right in many European countries who are exploiting the refugee situation for their own political ends. And I think we have to be on, on guard about that, which is why it is important we get as broad political support as we can in this country so that we don't allow the far right to, to exploit refugees against against the humanitarian instincts of, of, of many people. If I can go back to my first visit to Calais when the jungle was still there, part of it had been cleared. And in the shopping street in the middle of the jungle, They had a display of tear gas canisters and rubber bullets and I said what are they for? And they said when they tried to clear the first part of the camp They'd use those to get the refugees to move on. I said, how could they do that? And they said that the then French government was extremely worried about the National Front in that part of Calais and uh, uh, And that's why they were using these terrible things Uh, and I said, but you don't defeat the National Front by using their weapons or by by behaving like they do. So I think we have to be on the guard that the extreme right in Europe is very, very dangerous. And we have to be on our guard against them and we have to make sure we put the argument, we keep arguing, we keep attacking xenophobia and to say these are people who are entitled to a decent life and for heaven's sake, let's show we're humanitarian and offer them a decent life. We're not talking about everybody, we're talking about a few. Could I just add one other thing? I think it's important that Europe gets its act together as a whole. I wish our influence in Europe were greater. Uh, because of Brexit, our influence is now declining, but I think Europe needs an agreed refugee policy for all the all European countries, uh, and so we don't get people like Hungary saying and that th- their leader said um, refugees have nothing to do with us. We only want white Christians. Well, that is totally out of kilter with. With the way in which Europe is moving forward and in which we're moving forward and, and and Germany and Sweden and so on. so I think I think we need to look towards uh, more international agreement about refugees, so we don't have one country blaming the other and nothing happening.
1: absolutely. And um, now, Stephen, as leader of a council, you've been on the front line of fighting austerity and cuts. Um, has it been hard to find the resources that you need to support these refugees? I think I already know the answer to that, but anyway. Um, and if you did have more funding, what more do you think could be possible?
0: Well, we've already said to the Parliamentary Select Committee, which I gave Evans to, which is the government gives us full cost recovery, so it pays for every aspect of the charge we have, then we will take 200 child refugee, dubs children immediately, they haven't taken us up on that. And we've joined up with the safe passage uh, commitment of doing that over, over 10 years. Uh, and again, that's a very bold commitment. So the question is why? And the reason why is we think that fits with everything else we're trying to do. You know, when you look at austerity, it's not just, I think economics that make people question what their political representatives are doing. It's a sense that, you know, anyone who's knocked on the door for a long time will have had people say you're all the same. And then, you know, what we've done, for example, on austerity is to take a very kick-ass approach to property developers. You know, so we don't take hospitality, for example. You know, the way the system often works is you'll have a lobbyist inviting you for dinner or a football match or uh, the proms. And we don't take a penny, which means that, and we also don't allow lobbyists to come and see us. So it means that anyone who wants to develop in Hammersmith and Fulham has to come and see me. And then we negotiate. And we negotiate against a backdrop where um, for the last 10 years, the development industry has ripped off the public sector by billions by complaining that it didn't have the money to spend on uh, affordable housing and other things, which the public care about. Now, that last 10 years has been the biggest property boom in the post-war period. So it wasn't true when they said that. So we've called them on that and have got 643 million quid from developers, which is a record for this borough, but it's also a record for this, any council in the country. And that's what I think when the public knows stuff like that. They, they're on our side and we're on their side. It's a case of going out there and fighting the corner. And when people see you doing that, then they're quite happy for you to do other things as well. But the first base for most members of the public is they want elected representatives who are going to take a hard-nosed, tough approach in standing up for them and their rights and their children's
2: rights. Uh, a kick-ass approach to property developers. I can hear friend of the pod Philip Normal firing up his t-shirt printer <laughs> as as we speak. Um, it's a fantastic,
3: fantastic expression, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it I really is. I, I my hat off to, my hat off to Stephen and his fellow councillors. I yeah.
1: think that may have to be the subtitle for this episode.
2: Yeah, if we can get you in a t-shirt or dubs with a uh, kick-ass approach to property developers, I think that would be Sorry brilliant. <laughs> Just to move things on to slightly more serious matters. So we've seen this week, and um, this episode will be coming out a little bit later, but unfortunately this is an evergreen sentence. Um, We've seen Labour's anti-Semitism crisis getting worse and worse. And we've also seen anti-Semitism more generally on the rise. Um, At the same time, we've seen anti-Semitism and Israel being weaponised by the far right in places like America as a way to excuse blatant racism. Knowing what you know and having seen what you've seen, how worried should we be right now about the state of affairs?
3: I'm pretty worried because it's seventy or eighty years um, after the transport came. It's seventy years after we, the, the or, uh, after the concentration camps were liberated, and we're still discussing anti-Semitism. I find that deeply, deeply shocking. Uh, uh, and can I just say that I think I think it's possible to be totally opposed to anti-Semitism and still be very critical of the Israeli government, I certainly am. And and, and merging the two only weakens the argument uh, about anti-Semitism. That's that's one point. But secondly, I think we've got to be pretty tough and resolute. Uh, I I think uh, we have to take action against any form of racism, whether whether it's racism against black people, whether it's Islamophobia, or whether it's anti-Jewish racism. And I think we haven't been... As a Labour Party, we haven't moved fast enough. We should have nipped this in the bud at the beginning, uh, and and the party response was far too slow, mm. and it is still too slow.
2: I think it was uh, one of your colleagues, Lord Peter Hain, who wrote a piece with Daniel Levy about um, how the anti-Semitism crisis actually makes it harder for Labour to be a credible voice for a two-state solution and a credible critic of the Israeli yeah. government.
3: Yes, I, 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 agree, I agree with that. I was at one, one of the meetings where, where they were both present just, just, just like this last week. And, I, and, and Other people also who know very much more about the region than I do have said that this whole anti-Semitism argument is weakening the, the case of the Palestinians, it is weakening the case for a two-state solution, therefore it is jeopardizing peace in, in the Middle East. And we've got to be absolutely clear that, that the anti-Semitism argument should not stop us criticizing the policies of the, of the Israeli government, uh, because that. That is the best way, a change in in Israel policy, the best way to move towards a two-state solution, which I still believe is the only way forward for peace there.
2: And just one more difficult question before we end on a high note, Stephen. Um, We've seen how the chaos and the division within the Labour Party disrupts advocating for things like a two-state solution. Does the chaos and the day-to-day drama of the Labour Party, is that frustrating for you as a borough-wide representative when you're trying to make change? And people whose doors you're knocking on, all they see about the Labour Party is infighting and chaos and anti-Semitism.
0: I think the Labour Party is the greatest institution for change, not just this country, but if you look at it in the broadest historical sense, then the world has ever known. And so I will always be a proud member of the Labour Party uh, for that reason. I think it's incumbent on all of us who share that love for our party to make sure that it always reaches to the highest ideals. And so our call here in Hammersmith and Fulham, because we're a very united group, is always to live up to that. And we, uh, we're we not trying to run the government, we're trying to run the borough, and I think the public know that. So we have a very clear, stated brand, which people like. We had the largest swing to Labour, twice in the last two council elections, anywhere in the country. Um, but I think this party is a very important thing for our civilization. And when it's at its best, we sweep into power. And that's what we need it to be at its best for those reasons.
2: Brilliant. Well, we're approaching a high note there. So let's let's keep that going. Uh, we're putting these questions to both of you now. So we've got a few questions to run through. Um, so Alf, let's start with you. What's the thing that you've done whilst campaigning or being in office that you are the most proud of?
3: I suppose the campaign on behalf of child refugees, because we had a success in getting the legislation through both Houses of Parliament. And although the numbers are small because the government have responded very poorly, the fact is that even one child being brought to safety to have a decent life is one victory for humanity. So let, let, let's not disparage the success we've had and the success we've had in, in, in areas like in areas like in like Hammersmith. Uh, that's number one. Can I just add, slip in? A yes, gone. Yeah. Um, most of them don't get that sort of publicity, but I, <laughs> but, but I I was quite involved. In the campaign against um, against um, cluster bombs and cluster munitions, they're a bit like landmines. These are bomblets, which are, which are dropped in a bomb or which are fired in a shell, and and they become several hundred bomblets which after the conference is over, they lie there and children step on them and have their legs blown off. And we had a campaign and about 119 countries signed up to outlawing them. Not everybody, the Americans didn't, the Russians didn't, uh, so on. But but I think that's a success. And the third one is I was privileged to be a junior minister in Northern Ireland when Molum was there. And I think any small contribution I, I made to the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement makes me feel there are things in politics that are worthwhile.
2: And with a no-deal approaching now, it seems more important than ever, that work that you guys did in the 90s. Well, I
3: think anything that puts the puts Good Friday Agreement into jeopardy, which I'm afraid a no-deal agreement would, mm-hmm. and which is liable to increase the tensions in Northern Ireland and bring, and bring back a hard border, were absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I shudder at the prospect for the people of Ireland and people here if we turn the clock back. You know, Can I just say one yeah, other thing, yeah. if I may, just on a fan no, Go for know, it. A fanfare. You know, going back to refugees, this country gave me tremendous opportunities. It gave me a warm welcome, and I would like to feel that child refugees coming to Britain today will have the same warm welcome and opportunities that I had.
0: Brilliant. That's a, that's a tough act to follow, Stephen. What have you got for us? It's a very tough act to follow. So I am extremely proud to be a foot soldier following Alf Dubs, <laughs>
1: um,
0: which is uh, something that I think anyone who can be associated as one of Alf's team uh, will will feel that sense. Uh, in terms of what we're doing here, you know, in the broader sense, we came in with the aspiration of being a bold administration that blew the roof off the building and maybe... Try to demonstrate what social democracy looks like at its very best. And so I am glad that when the NHS held their conference to defend the cuts on the NHS, they came to Hammersmith because he saw us as the centre of a fight. And that earlier this year, after a seven year battle, where I've had numerous legal threats from the government, um, We saved Charing Cross and stopped the biggest hospital closure program in London's history. And, you know, I do think, I look at my team and I do think it's great that we're the only council to give free breakfast to all children. We're the only council to make sure that our elderly have no home care charges because social care is fundamental to their civil rights and way of life. And we do stuff like we're the first council to argue for a people's vote, and are still making sure that we're not going to crash out the European Union. And we'll spend an awful lot of our time and effort fighting to remain as full members of this beautiful creation, which is the European Union, the European dream. So there are many things. I always think, though, pride is a bad thing to have in a politician, uh, you know. And so it's 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 really very. Incumbent, on all of us in any leadership position, not to get leadership disease. <laughs> uh, so I try not to, uh, you know, I try and take my lead from health and uh, not get too too <laughs> t- too
3: taken with the things we're doing and just focus on doing them. But well, can Go I on. just say it's great? It's great to be living in Hammersmith. It was great to be campaigning on behalf of the Labour Group uh, in both the last two council elections. It's great to have had, great to be part of their victory as a small foot soldier who spent his time knocking on doors. But God was I proud when they won. Yeah.
0: I must say, I did like the look on the Conservatives' faces when we were the um, famously the best tax-cutting council in Britain for our, our whole of our first term. I mean, they just had nowhere to go. <laughs> and the fact that other Tory boroughs were yanking up council tax, and we were freezing it and cutting it for our first term was good. And we still cut more council charges and stealth taxes than any other administration in the country. So um, there's quite a lot that sometimes makes me smile.
1: This has made me feel more hopeful already. It's cheered me up no end. I think I'm going to amalgamate the next two questions because that will work. Obviously, our listeners are all progressives who can be a bit depressed about the state of politics and the state of the Labour Party. I used to say it was like hitting my head against a brick wall. Now it feels like you're hitting your head against a massive stone castle. But I guess on the both of you, for activists who may be losing hope a bit, what's your best piece of advice?
0: Well... It falls to each generation to find that hope and then to explain it to the public who will vote for it if we articulate it in a way that looks believable. So I would say that hope is incumbent in the Labour mission. It always has done. You can't make the radical change that our party has made to our country and indeed to the world without being optimistic. So people are obliged to look for it. And I'll tell you where I find it. I find it in almost every member of the public I come across every person I meet, you continuously find decent people who are willing, not just things for them and their family, but for all of us. They want our country to be better. They want it to be kinder. They want it to be stronger. And within that, there is a space for leadership where labor can lead. And this generation, the next generation always finds its leaders. So maybe they're listening into this podcast. I hope they are (laughs) because that's exactly what we want for
2: many generations to come. Brilliant. And Alf, can you, can well, you finish yourself? Well, first of all, I can
3: fully endorse what's, what what, what, <laughs> what Steve said. Can I just, can I just add, add, add this thought? I think it's important that those of us that are privileged to be in a position of some political influence make a difference. There's no point in being where we are if we don't make a difference to the lives of ordinary people. <sighs> and so what I hold to, hold close to my heart is, is what I do, is it making a difference, can it help Uh Anything I do to support Steve obviously makes a difference. I think in Parliament it's also possible to make a difference. I think that's the key. The test is, are we making a difference, and is that difference on behalf of ordinary people who need better lives than they've got at the moment?
2: Well, on a rainy day here and another gloomy week in Westminster, I think you both have provided a lot of inspiration for us and our listeners, and we'll be leaving um actions that people can take in the show notes of this show if you want to be a progressive and help make a difference like these two have here. But for now guys, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton.